We are in 2015, as you should well know by now, in the theme of walk worthy of your calling. And that entire theme is based on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, I, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so we've endeavored, as we've gone along, to uh, study out this idea of calling, be it our individual calling, our collective calling, our walk, our daily walk, our holiness, and then uh, we are currently in a series called Walk Like Jesus. And this uh, sermon series is specifically covering the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. There's another version in Luke, but we're going through the one in Matthew And we're just kind of going down the text to see how Jesus really calls us not to live at this level, but to rise above and live at this level, Uh, to go to a deeper, uh, more real, genuine uh, following discipleship that starts right here in the heart. It's easy to do the outward stuff. That stuff can be adjusted and modified as you go. But if we're uh, trying to be like Jesus, our goal is to walk like him. And so our theme verse for this whole series comes not from the Sermon on the Mount, but from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, where Jesus, or John there writes, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Do you understand what that means? That means that if you claim to be a Christian, you must walk and live and act And be as Jesus was. To the best of our ability, then, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're endeavoring to understand what Jesus called us to do. How Jesus called us to walk. We started by saying that he calls us to walk boldly. And we do that because we understand we're blessed. Now, blessed, as we said, is not happy. It's deeper. It's much more meaningful, much more uh, grounded and anchored than happy. Happy comes and goes. But blessed gives us the perspective that we can have a blessed life no matter what our external circumstances. We then are able to be the salt and the light as Jesus calls us to be in a dark and bland world. Then our second lesson, we talked about being faithful and how Jesus calls us to walk faithfully. Uh, You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you, you know, endeavoring to imply that relationship with Jesus is more than just religion. It's a practical, meaningful, day-to-day, intimate relationship with Christ. And then last week we said that Jesus calls us to walk consistently. In other words, to take off the mask and, and not be like the hypocrites and the religious leaders of the day. Jesus calls us out of hypocrisy and into consistency, into a genuine, authentic relationship with him. When we do that, then our righteousness far surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So, it's been about 16 years. I don't exactly remember the day, but I'm sure that my wife will remember. We were new marrieds. And we lived in an apartment in Phoenix, Arizona. And this apartment was a little one-bedroom apartment. And we didn't, you know, we were just at that stage of life where we didn't have anything. Uh, We don't got honey, money, money, honey, but we got love, right? And that's good because that's all we had. (laughs) 
So one day we had been in the apartment maybe a month or two or something, and, and we happened to come to the door at the same time. And, and I thought it would be a cool, romantic gesture to just sweep my wife, my beautiful bride, off her feet. And so I swept her into my arms, and I kind of opened the door, and I, I was just looking into her eyes, just knowing I was winning, winning husband points as I gazed into her eyes and just said, I love you, and I'm so thrilled to be your husband and and how wonderful it is to be married to you. And as I was saying these beautiful, romantic words, I stepped into a laundry basket. As you can well imagine, the rest of the story will not be soon forgotten. As I stepped into the laundry basket, I was surprised, dumped my wife on the floor, slammed my head into the wall and spilled over on the floor. This is uh, true love. I mean, that Christie's still with me today is a miracle of God. you got to be careful where you put your trust. My question to you is, where do you put your trust? We're saying that Jesus has called us to walk securely. But in order to do that, there has to be a level of trust. Even as you are married, as, you, as you're new married, you, you're learning to trust one another in, in the relationship, in communication, in, in money, in the budget, in all of those things. You're learning to trust. If you want a secure marriage, a marriage that's built on the rock, it's going to have to at some point get to a point where you trust one another. Most couples who get divorced, uh, it all comes back to trust. At some point, one violates the trust of another. My question to you this morning is not so much about your marriage, but who do you trust? If you're turning in your Bibles, open to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. We are given a very powerful truth about trust. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You probably even know this verse by memory. But if you don't, read with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Trust is an easy thing when you come into the world. Children, I'm personally convicted, have the gift of trust. I think God designed them that way so that they're able to learn. I trust what mom and dad say, so I'll do it. Now, sometimes as parents, we fight against that. But in general, trust is something that children do easier than others. So that makes it easier where we can tell them anything, especially as very young children, and they tend to believe it. Well, that's a beautiful thing as a child, but it can also get them into trouble. If children trust the wrong person, someone who would hurt them or do them harm, their trust can be broken. Their lives can be damaged forever. As we get older, all of us, in some ways, have our trust broken, sometimes by a little thing, sometimes by a big thing. But trust is something that is chipped away over time. And so when the scriptures call us to trust, they're calling us to do something, especially as an adult, that is not easy to do naturally. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, turn there. All of the heroes of faith, all the characters within the Bible, at some point came to this fork in the road where they were forced to, to trust themselves or trust something else or to trust what the prophet said or what God had told them. 
And Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, the verse there says, if you're reading along, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, that's a, that's a beautiful psalm. I'm guessing, though, not too many of us have chariots and horses in our modern-day garages. And yet, just like the kings of old, we can be tempted to trust in our own power, in our own wisdom, in our own strength, instead of trusting in the name of God. And that's easy to do. My question is, what is your chariots and horses? Perhaps it's achievement. Uh, rising up the corporate ladder, making a name for yourself, becoming well-known, becoming more influential, more people under you, teams that you manage, teams that you lead. You're on your way up to vice president or maybe president, someday CEO. Maybe it's money. You watch your, your bank account getting bigger and bigger. You have lots of security. Perhaps it's education as you get your master's degree and your doctorate degree and you, you consider yourself an educated person. Perhaps it's success or power but my guess is that of all the things that we might consider chariots or horses, the most common is yourself. Where do you put your trust? Uh, I'll finish the, the answer the question by filling in the blank, not on your handout, but just mentally. As long as I've got this, whatever this is, as long as I've got this... I'll be okay. And maybe it's only one of those things that was on the list, or maybe it's something else. But Jesus calls us to walk securely, and that sounds good. I think we all want that, but the real difficulty is how do we do it? How do we avoid putting trust in things that will ultimately fail us? Jesus gives us four practical steps, and now we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 6. As we endeavor to look at these four steps that Christ calls us to do. Number one, we got to store up treasures, not trash. Store up treasures, not trash. We're in Matthew chapter 6 now. And if you're following along through the series, you know we're ready to read at verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and following. Read with me. Um, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if, if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light within you is darkness. How great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. First thing that Jesus talks about are our earthly treasures. Now, I know there's... You might think there's some exception to this, but if you really extend out your timeline, everything that you have, everything that you own, eventually is going down in value. In five years or less, actually probably in two years or less, all technology that you have will be quickly 
uh, obsolete, ancient. Uh, you might be one of those poor souls who only has an iPhone 4, and I, I pray for you. I'm sorry. And people have gotten on to me. They say, you keep mentioning iPhones and iPads. You know, what about the Androids? Listen, I'm just talking about the technology that Jesus used, okay? So go easy on me here. They're going to love that. Ten years or less, all the clothes you're wearing either won't fit or they'll be hopelessly out of style. And for some of us, it doesn't stop us. We'll wear them anyway. In 20 years or less, your current furniture, everything in your house, that decorations and couches and, and uh, love seats and tables and chairs and all of that, uh, will likely be thrown away or given away or sold at pennies on the dollar. In 50 years or less, the car that you drive right now will probably be in a junkyard. In 100 years or less, the money you spent your whole life acquiring will be in someone else's hands and, for that matter, it will be worth half as much. It will buy half as much. In 150 years or less, all your jewelry, all your valuables, all your collectibles, all the things that you treasure, your hobbies, everything will be in someone else's hands. In 175 years or less, your home will be demolished or exceptionally dilapidated. In 200 years or less, someone will throw away your baby pictures because they won't remember you or know your story or see any value to holding on to them. Peter goes on to say that everything you have, everything we all have, eventually will become very nice kindling. The only treasure then that outlasts the earth are souls. Everything else either ends up buried about a mile and a half west of here or burned up. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. He's not saying there's anything wrong with having treasure. If you have lots of treasure and lots of stuff, that's fine as long as it doesn't have you. If you let it into your heart, that's when it becomes a problem. Uh, here's the real test of where your treasure is. Imagine you wake up in the middle of the night, you're coughing, you hear your smoke detectors going off, and instantaneously, your first, most instinctive reaction is to do what? Get yourself out, get your family out. Nothing else matters. We've had some people in this congregation lost nearly everything in a home, but they, thank God, all the family came out okay. That's treasure. That shows us where our true value lies. Psalm chapter 16, verse 5, goes beyond that and says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Jesus says, your treasures, heavenly treasures, are the souls that you bring with you to heaven. So my question to you is, if treasures in heaven are those souls, are those people that you love. How is your heavenly portfolio looking? I'm at the stage of life where you know, I check my portfolio every now and again, make sure I'm kind of on track with where I need to be. Do you ever look at your heavenly portfolio? You take an assessment of who's going with you when everything's set on fire. So step number one is store up treasures, not trash, which means we don't put our trust in the trash. We can have lots of stuff, we can have lots of money, but 
We don't let it have us, and we certainly don't put our trust there. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Those of you following along, we're going to go to verse 17. In verse 17, Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It is one of the difficulties of preaching to a church in the United States of America. Because we talk about rich and poor. Listen, if you live in this country, you are rich. I don't care what your income level is. You look at it compared to the rest of the world, and you are rich. And you might sit here this morning and say, well, I'm not rich, so I don't have to worry about First Timothy chapter 6. No, no, no. It's not talking about how much stuff you have. It's talking about your attitude toward the stuff you have. There are going to be people who have absolutely no money and who still serve at the altar of money. So we have to have the right attitude and the right perspective and not put our hope in it, no matter how much we have or think we don't have. I was trying to think of a way to explain this whole idea of not putting your trust in stuff. Um, If you think of your life at little stages, uh, each box here that I'm going to show you represents a stage. When you when you first start your life and you just start out, you're graduated from college or you're just newly married. You know, you're back to where Christy and I were in that one bedroom apartment with nothing except love and needing a new laundry basket. And you have nothing. There's just in terms of earthly treasure, you don't have very much. You are in the aspire stage. You think, well, well, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get more. I'm going to save more. I'm going to work, do well at work. I'm going to get more things. I'm going to get a a bigger place so I can have more stuff. And so you aspire to a bigger place that has more closet space, which there never seems to be enough of, and uh, more kitchen space to hold more food, and, and more space for you to have more things in your life, in your You're beginning to move from the aspiring stage to the acquiring phase. And you keep building up your barns and filling them and then having to build bigger barns. So you go from aspiring to acquiring. And you acquire and acquire over your life. And you think, this is these are the things which make my life valuable. These are the things which give it meaning. Until finally you get to a point where you you finally get that one big perfect house with the perfect yard it's full of all the perfect things and right about that time you're in your what you might call your forever house well the kids are gone and uh, there's a lot of space for just the two of you and so you you know it, it's time to time to downsize a little bit and so you you begin downsizing and you go to a smaller home and you, you have less stuff. And then grandkids come along and it fills up with a little more stuff. But you really don't need all that space until finally the kids tell you, you know, it's time. It's time. We need to, to put you in a place where they can care for you. Or we, can, we can bring you to live with us. And you're all the way back to a very tiny space. My grandmother, who passed away a couple of years ago on my dad's side, she... She was in the last days of her life. We're in just a, a very small room, probably not more than a few hundred square feet. One bedroom, one bathroom, and only the minimal amount of stuff. She was all the way back to 
she, we have gone from aspire to acquire to retire. And eventually, there's no more boxes left. You're all done. Well, I'm, I'm not true. You, there's one more box left. Except you're in it. We go from aspiring to acquiring to retiring to expiring. And we learn that the value is not in the boxes or the stuff in the boxes, but the value is in the people that we take with us to heaven. And we don't put our trust in those things, but we trust in the Lord. As Charles Spurgeon said, does the world satisfy you? Then you have your full portion in this life, for you shall know no other joy. Step number two, concern yourself with today, not tomorrow. Chapter 6, uh, back in Matthew chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 20, verses 25 through 34. Listen to the words of your Savior. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about, what you're, about your life, about what you will eat or drink or your body or what you will wear. Is not life more important than food? Is not the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, tomorrow is thrown in the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry about what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom And his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The good news is, I just make a list in your mind of the top ten things you're worried about right now. And of those ten things... My experience in life, which is not full yet, but 9.9 of those things will never, ever happen. And the point one that does will not happen as you imagine it. Think about it. Anyone who's going through something major right now. I mean, look at your announcement sheet on the other side of the fill in the blank. Look at the top of that. People who are going through difficult things. Beth Davis and Joshua Oakley and Callum Block. The list goes on and on. Think about those people. One year ago today, did they see that situation coming? No. So Jesus says, don't, don't fret over those things because you, you can't even worry correctly. If you are legitimately worried, you're in a place in life that's real low, I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 46. I want you to keep it there. I want you to mark it, memorize it, write it down, put it on a note card. Psalm chapter 46 
tells us this truth because it's not that God's unsympathetic. He knows that we live in a world of trouble and difficulty and trial. What he wants us to do is trust him. Psalm chapter 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now pay attention. Here's what he says about the city of God. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. Now you need to understand that if you have promised to be with God, he has promised to be with you. And I know the world may fall apart. Indeed, the more you watch the news, the more it is falling apart. But we do not fear Because there is within us a Holy Spirit who will not fall. He is our strength. He is our refuge. So when we are tempted to worry, we don't tremble over tomorrow. Try to think about the crisis of the day. What was it a year ago? Can you remember? Ebola? I haven't got Ebola. I don't know anyone with Ebola. I'm not saying it's not a serious thing. It's just that there's always a crisis. Last week, one week ago from today, the crisis of the day was the the new, the supermoon, you know, the end, the apocalypse. It's all coming. It's a a sign. It's the red moon. And uh, no one was any, not no one, but many people were not planning anything past Wednesday because they were sure that that the end of time was here. And here we are on Sunday. What do we worry about today? ISIS and Russia and elections and guys, there will always be something to worry about. Never has been the headline, everything is peachy. It's not how the world works. Even more than that, now stay with me here. Worry is a sin. It's just as much a sin as lying stealing, adultery, any of the the sins you can think of, worry is a sin. And in my opinion, it gets worse than those other sins because at its core is this lack of trust within God. Worry is really saying, I don't trust God. Worry is really saying, I don't think I matter to God. Out of six billion people, he can't keep track. So I better, you know, take hold of the steering wheel here. Worry is saying, I don't think God is good. Worry is saying, I'm really in control. Worry is such wasted energy. The other day I was driving down the road and there was a Christian music station and they were talking about the lottery. This was interesting to me. And they were they just happened to be chit-chatting about it. And they, they were talking about however many hundreds of millions of dollars it was or is. I don't pay attention to it. But they, they started this conversation of, what would you do if you had all those millions of dollars? And it made me angry. 
Because they're not going to have all those millions of dollars, and nobody listening to the radio that day is going to have all those millions of dollars. But now what they've done is wasted their mental energy, actual brain cells, thinking about something that's never going to happen. Never. And it's the same way with worry. It's wasted energy, and it's not putting our trust in our Father. So if you are worried and you have trouble... Turn to Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a command in there, folks. But pray in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Number three, work on yourself, not others. The truth is... You can't control others. This is a value I try to instill within my children. We can't worry about what other people say or what they think or the action, the poor decisions they make. We can only control ours. And let me tell you, some days it's a fight just to control my actions. Jesus says, worry about, work about yourself, on yourself, not other people. Think, God is the only person who could ever force us and change us to do good when we don't, or to, to turn us away from evil when we go there. But even he will not. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Jesus there says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? Well, when the whole time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. The world absolutely loves Matthew 7 verse 1. Actually, 7 verse 1a. Do not judge. That's what it says right there in the Bible. Don't judge. That means you as a Christian can't make a moral judgment. There's no right or wrong. There's no absolute. What's good for you may not be good for me. How dare you judge me? But that's not what the verse says. Look at the, the whole context of it. Jesus in verse 6 tells us we got to think. we got to use our brain to dis- distinguish between dogs and pigs. we got to learn to understand the situations we're in. Jesus calls us to make judgments between false and true prophets, between wolves and sheep, between grapes and thorns and thistles, uh, thistles and figs. Jesus would later say in John 7... Stop judging by mere appearances. Learn to judge correctly. See, Jesus Jesus did say to judge. What he's saying is he wants us to judge correctly. Not as the hypocrites did. Not as the Pharisees and Sadducees where they would look at other people's speck and ignore this huge blank in their eye. Jesus says perception is not reality. Reality is reality. 
And you've got to make judicious, you've got to be judicious in your thinking and judicious in how you act toward other people. So we have to use judgment, especially as Christians. If we're going to survive as sheep among wolves, then we've got to learn to think. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Use your brain. If you're going to be as shrewd as a snake, you have to think. Occasionally, I impart to my children the left or right hand of knowledge. Thump on the head. Followed by the phrase, use your brain. This is effectively what Jesus is saying. But use it in a way that's consistent. Use it on yourself as you do with others. Pay attention to the plank just as much as you do the, step, the speck. Don't trouble with the trivial. Don't worry about everybody else. Have a right attitude of judgment concerning yourself. Think about how you judge and how you want others to judge you. You're driving to church this morning. You had both hands on the wheel. And you, you weren't quite paying attention or somebody said something and you, weren't, you were distracted and you veered over into the other lane. Almost cut somebody off or you did cut somebody off. And you're just embarrassed and you think, oh man, I'm so dumb. Why did I do that? And you hope that the person who you almost ran off the road has a, has a spirit and a judgment of mercy and grace. You hope. My question is, what kind of spirit do you have when they veer into your lane, when they cut you off? Now, we want to have a consistent standard of judgment. We have, if we want justice and fairness in other people, expect them to judge us in the same way. But if we want mercy and grace, we have to extend it to others as well. Don't worry about others until you have worked on you, because you is the only one you can really do anything about. Step number four, trust in God, not yourself. There are so many situations in life where you are called to trust in your father. This past week, a ter- horrific, uh, sickening incident where a gunman came onto a college campus and intentionally sought out Christians. And as he pointed that gun at their head... He said, are you a Christian? Now, in that very moment, they had to decide who they trusted. And when they would answer yes, they were showing their trust fully and completely to the point of martyrdom. You may not have to go that far, but we are called at every level to stop trusting in everything else. And, and, and certainly, least of all, ourself, and begin trusting in God. The, the verse that was read just a minute ago, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. For who is God besides the Lord? Who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. Well, Trust in God and not yourself. I intended to say more, but I'll just skip that and uh, you'll just be completely annoyed that you can't fill in your blanks. But you'll be excited. We'll get out on time. Who do you trust? Do you trust your treasures? You trust tomorrow? You trust in yourself? 
Where we want to put our trust is in God. The other day, family and I were taking advantage of the cool September evenings, going for a walk around our neighborhood, and that particular day, the kids had on skates. They were, Tyler had on his rollerblades, and Grace had on her little skates, and they were going around the neighborhood. Now, Tyler's going on up ahead because he can skate by himself. Grace is not quite at the ability where she can do it herself yet. And so when she's skating, she's holding her dad's hand. Now, we're skating along the sidewalk, but we come to a point where there's a car blocking the sidewalk. So we have to go off the sidewalk into the street a little bit and then back onto the sidewalk. And as we go, we come down into the street. And right there is something I wouldn't notice, but a four-year-old would. Right on the curb there is a, a storm drain. Now, a storm drain for a four-year-old is huge. It's a giant, dark, scary hole just waiting to suck her in. And she gets nervous, and I can feel her hand tighten up and clench up. And I said, come on, Grace, let's go. I've got you. And she says, are you sure, Dad? Some of us are in that spot where we believe God, we trust God, we're holding his hand. But sometimes we have those moments in life that cause us to say, are you sure you've got me? And I need to remind you that he does. But if you've been lacking trust in God, or maybe you've never put trust in Jesus, you know, it's not just one thing to believe in Jesus. You've got to repent. You've got to confess him. You've got to be baptized. You've got to put your hand in his hand and let him lead you home. If you haven't been trusting him as you should, I pray that you'll come. Trust the Father. Trust the Son. As together we stand and sing.